0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at verses 25 to 35 this morning. If you're looking at one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 874. God's inspired inerrant word who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God bless the reading and hearing of His holy word to us this morning. Well, this passage before us today is one that calls for some deep soul-searching. Soul-searching is not easy to do. And it's not easy to convince people that they need to do some soul-searching. I guess that everyone who is listening, or at least the majority of people listening to me at this moment, uh, you're convinced today that you're okay. You're here in church, and you should probably think, you know, I'm okay with this. And you do not need, because you feel like you're okay, to make an examination of your heart. If you're not sick, then why go to the doctor? Well, you should know the answer to that one. Most of you have heard of Tim Keller, a uh, pastor in, the, in, the, in our denomination. He's one of the best preachers in the world. Well, he just recently announced that he has pancreatic cancer. That's a pretty tough one. Well, on June 7th, he made the announcement that, that uh, in, a, in his announcement, he said he had no idea that he had cancer. He felt great. He had no symptoms, and the do- doctors just, through a routine checkup, incidentally discovered this cancer. Thankfully now it can be treated because he went and had a checkup. Now consider the passage before us today a routine checkup. Now checkups are usually not fun. I know some of you get a little nervous about going to the doctor and, uh, and sometimes the poking and prodding and testing is is not fun at all um, and they can be very uncomfortable and so can this one that we're looking at today. Because Jesus challenges those that would be his disciples to think and evaluate what it means to be a disciple of Christ and then test ourselves to see if we fit the description. If we don't fit the description, then he challenges us to count the cost and deliberate if this is the course we want to take in life that course being the road that Jesus walked. So I want us to think about two questions today. I'm going to focus a lot of attention on the first one uh, and then hopefully have a good bit of time for the second one. First, what does Jesus tell us is required to be a disciple of Christ? What is required to be a disciple of Christ? And then secondly, why should you be a disciple of Christ? Why would you be a disciple of Christ? Let's look first. What's required to be a disciple of Christ? Jesus has these large crowds that have been following him, listening to his teaching, witnessing his miracles, yet they're still non-committal about becoming his followers. And he makes three statements that describe how one cannot be a disciple of Jesus. They are in verses 26, 27, and 33, of course let's reflect on each one of those in turn for a few minutes the first one verse 26 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple now i cannot think of a more provocative statement by jesus than this one to hate your own parents of course it's a figure of speech that Jesus is using. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's a hyperbole. It's a, an extravagant statement, not intended to be taken literally. For example, we might say, we go to a restaurant and we've had to wait a long time. We've had to wait an eternity for our food. Now, you haven't waited an eternity yet. You've just waited a really long time. You're overstating the case. To communicate something it's hyperbole and Jesus in this case when he says you should hate your own father and mother he's not saying that we are to hate our parents and other family members If you look at other teaching of Jesus he reiterates the commandment for example to honor our father and mother throughout scripture disciples are commanded to love their spouse love their children even love their enemies The second greatest commandment that Jesus reinforced and restated is to love others as you love yourself. So obviously Jesus is not telling us to hate other people. Jesus taught us to love others. And Jesus is not saying that we should literally hate our lives. The Scriptures make it clear that our lives are a gift from God. We should have an appreciation of our life and the lives of others. What does Jesus say? He's saying that a true disciple loves Jesus so much that all other loves are hatred by comparison. True discipleship is marked by a total devotion to Jesus. Every other priority a disciple might have as a human being takes a back seat to Jesus. Families are here on the priority scale. Well, Jesus is up here. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, I searched the Internet for priorities in your life, and one of the first articles that came up was seven priorities in life that should always come first. And I bet you could guess which one is number one. Anybody? Not yourself, no. Family, actually. Family. Family these are nice people not <laughs> selfish people so they the the one article that i read here's how they they ranked it 1 through 7 family friendships community health security progress or personal growth and fun i was glad that one was on there well i'm sure i could have looked at a lot of other lists and in the List would look very similar to that one. And I bet nine out of ten of them have family, number one. Practically every list would say that. And I think that's why Jesus is use, uses this particular example the example of our family and our lives here. Who in the world do you love more than your family? Well, what Jesus is saying, if you're a disciple of His, then you are to love Him most of all. And what is more important to you than your family? Well, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus is to be more important than your family. And what do you love more than your own life? You want to preserve your life and you want to have a good life, right? Well, not if you're a disciple of Jesus. He is more important than even your life. Many people have discovered this, and that's why so many Christians in other parts of the world and throughout the centuries have been willing to suffer and to die for Jesus Christ because they loved Jesus Christ more than their own life. You think about the first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishing partners. When they encountered Jesus and they heard him speaking, uh, at, some, at a at certain point, Jesus caused them to become his followers. Matthew's account says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. You see, and their father. Jesus was more important than their father or family business. They left it all behind to follow the Lord. Now their father is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, uh, you know, the only, if you look up Zebedee throughout it, it always talks about James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We never hear about Zebedee again, but we do hear from, his, from their mother. And you, there's an account where James and John's mother interacts with Jesus, and she's trying to promote her children through Jesus. So they aren't alienated from their family. They, they still love their mother and father, but Jesus became a greater priority for them. They were willing to devote their lives to following Jesus instead of following their father's footsteps of being a fisherman. The fact of the matter is those who love Jesus the most love their families the best. Now what about you? Are you devoted to Jesus over every other loyalty that you might have in your life? Would you be willing to die for Jesus? Is he that important to you? Well, that's the line in the sand that Jesus draws here. Let's look at the second one, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we looked at this back in chapter 9. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Well, this second statement follows on the first statement. They go together. Of course, first of all, Jesus said that those who would follow him must be devoted to him completely above everything else. Well that means that the true disciple, follower of Christ, will follow, if he's devoted to Jesus, will follow after Jesus, will follow the path that he walked. And that path that he walked was to the cross. That's what you see in the gospel of Luke. You know, Luke really stresses the fact that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and he gives us markers throughout those chapters. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he was always heading to Jerusalem. In fact, we just looked at it in chapter 13 that, that Jesus reiterates, "I must go to Jerusalem because a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen to him. He's, he's heading in that what, that, that direction, to the cross. He knows what's in store for him there. And he willingly laid down his life, a sacrifice for others. See? When Jesus tells us to bear our cross, you know, we, we use that, that phrase, don't we? Everybody has their cross to bear. You know, we might be talking about our bossy mother in law, or, or maybe we're even talking about an illness, a long term illness that we're dealing with, or a handicap, even. I'm not trying to, to make light of that at all, but that's not what Jesus means here. Those might be true difficult problems in your life. You may be suffering greatly for, through your health or through a problem, problematic relationship. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the kind of cross that he's talking about. He's talking about living a life like he lived, a life of self-sacrifice for others. That's what it means to bear your cross. It, re- it refers to self-sacrifice even to the point of giving one's life, which is what Jesus did. The cross results from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life of self-sacrifice for God and others. You think about what Jesus did. He came to earth with a mission from the Father. He was sacrificing himself to do what the Father had given him to do. And he came to do that, for others, for sinful people like you and me. He sacrificed himself. His whole life was one of great sacrifice. Philippians 2, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus sacrificed himself, and Paul is calling us to to follow suit, to deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. And Jesus says, Unless you do that, then you're not my follower. Unless you are committed to sacrifice in your life. Now, what about you? You know, it is a difficult thing to live a life that is not driven by self interest. But that's the call of Christ to those who would be his disciples. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Well, the third thing that Jesus said here, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now this statement uh, comes on the heels of the previous verses about counting the cost. If you're building a tower, you count the cost so that you can know that you can complete it. Or if you're a king and you go out to war, and the other guy's got twice as many troops and resources that you do. You know, you got to figure out, can I take this guy or not? And if I need to figure out what to do. So it flows out of these statements. He says, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that word, renounce, means to say goodbye to. To take leave of or part with Now, like the others, they're not it doesn't literally mean that we all should take a vow of poverty and give away everything that we have. Maybe maybe But what it does mean is that when you come to be a follower of Jesus, you put everything on the table. Your whole life and everything that you have. It's no longer yours, it's his. Your possessions, your life, your time, all your resources, are His because you are His disciple, His follower, completely devoted to Him and His cause. And so, all that you have been given, all that you have in your life, should be at His disposal. Jesus tells a wonderful parable. When I, I planted a church in England, as many of you know, uh, and we we first when we started worship services, I preached on the parables of Jesus and the first parable that I preached on was this parable of the pearl of great price. Again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You think about that pearl merchant. You know, he was probably well off. You know, pearls and you know, we we think of diamonds as being the most precious stone that is the most desirable thing we want you know diamonds are a girl's best friend and so forth well in those days they didn't have diamonds diamonds were mined in africa and they you know hadn't gotten into diamond mining at that point pearls were very rare because in the 1800s the japanese figured out how to make cultured pearls they could manipulate the oysters to make them produce pearls so pearls became much more common Well, in jesus's day pearls were of infinite value and so you've got this merchant he's searching for fine pearls and he finds that one pearl of great value and he and it says he went and sold all that he had and bought it and what did he have he had one pearl he didn't have anything else in the world he had one pearl and it was a pearl of great value of the utmost value he had that pearl but he didn't have anything else that's a picture of what jesus is saying here He renounced everything else. He left everything else behind. He left it all on the table at the the pearl shop. And he got the pearl of great price. And that's what Jesus is saying. You would be his follower. You've got him. Everything else you may have, but it's at his disposal. What about you? What in your life is more important than Jesus? Now, I want you to We'll change gears here for a moment. Notice what prompted these statements by Jesus. And I mentioned it before. uh, Verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, and then he turned and spoke to them. Great crowds accompanied him. They were there, following him around. They saw all the miracles. They heard the teaching. But they were not following him. They were not giving their lives to him. Like the Peter, Andrew, James, and John did. They were glad to hear everything that Jesus said, glad to attend all of His meetings, glad to to praise the Lord when the person was healed, glad to do all those things, but they were only accompanying Jesus. They weren't His followers. And we can accompany Jesus in our lives. We can come to church, we can hear all about it, We can see other people get saved and not be a follower of Jesus. We need to check ourselves. Are we actually a follower of Jesus as he describes here? That's why he says at the end, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use. Throw it in the street or in the manure pile, it doesn't matter. Well, any of you who have taken a science class, one of the first things you learn is about salt is that salt is sodium chloride. Salt cannot lose its saltiness. If you have pure salt, it, there's no way it can become salty, unsalty. If, it's, if you've got sodium chloride, you've got salt, and salt is salty, period, end of story. Now in those days, you know, they didn't have the processes that we had Sometimes their salt was filled with all kinds of stuff. And, you know, of course, salt will dissolve in water. So if your salt got wet, it would dissolve in the water, and you'd have stuff left behind that wasn't salt anymore. And it didn't taste like salt. It lost its saltiness. The point is, and I think this is what Jesus is driving at, if salt is not salty, then it's not salt. You know, if if disciples are not devoted to Christ, self-sacrificing their lives, and, and have not renounced everything for Jesus, then they're not disciples. That's a hard thing to hear. Because we all know our devotion wanes. <laughs> Even the most committed Christian goes through periods when uh, we lose our love for Christ. We don't like to sacrifice ourselves, for sure, for others. We get selfish. And we certainly love to build our own kingdoms and our own lives, and we want to have ownership of that. And we have a vision of what we want our lives to be like. Like the Ephesians, you know, the ladies are doing a Bible study throughout the PCA on the book of Ephesians. great church I was able to visit there back when we were missionaries. And uh, it was neat to be walking along that, you see the city ruins, it was a thriving city, uh, port city, and uh, they had one of the great libraries, the ancient libraries there in Ephesus. So it was a great place of learning and culture and lots of people there. And there was a church there that, that became a vital church. Paul wrote to it, you could tell that it was a great church. But by the time you get into close to the second century, John receives this vision about the church of Ephesus. About that church, he says, God says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They're doing great. But, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So yes, if if, if we're taking this checkup and we find we've got the disease, then the cure is repent and turn to Christ. Now, the second question, and I know I'm running out of time here, but really briefly, why should you be a disciple of Christ? Or how can you rekindle your devotion to Christ? John Stott, uh, has, his last book was called The Radical Disciple, and he said this, If Christian mat- maturity is maturity in our relationship with God in which we worship, trust, and obey Him, then the clearer our vision of Christ, the more convinced we become that He is worthy of our commitment. So, if we want to develop truly Christian maturity, we need above all a fresh and true vision of Jesus Christ. If only we could see Jesus in the fullness of what He is and what He has done, why then surely we should see how worthy He is of our wholehearted allegiance and faith, love, and obedience would be drawn out from us and we would grow into maturity. Nothing is more important for mature Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. For the, tri- for the discipleship principle is clear. The poorer our vision of Christ, the poorer our discipleship will be, whereas the richer our vision of Christ, the richer our discipleship will be. And I just want you to see, I, know, I wish I had more time to develop this, but I just want you to look at Jesus for a moment. Now, Jesus is preaching to these crowds, and He's telling them these three strong statements. And you know, you don't like a preacher who doesn't practice what he preaches. Well, Jesus practiced what He preached. Notice and think about how much Jesus was devoted to sinful people like us. He's calling us to be totally devoted to Him, but He was totally devoted to sinners. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He had the greatest of love for sinners, and he came to earth to die in their place. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The writer of Hebrews See, Christ was, for the joy of saving sinners, he endured the cross. He sacrificed everything. He's asking us to sacrifice, to take up our cross? Well, he took up the cross. He's not asking us to die for sinners, to to die in their place like he did, because on the cross, yes, he sacrificed himself and he suffered physically, but he suffered in his soul. He endured the punishment of God for our sins in his body. In his soul, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God the Father turned his gracious love away from Christ. He became sin embodied, and the wrath of God was poured out on him. Jesus knew that he was going to do that. That's why he sweated great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he knew that he was about to drink that cup of God's wrath in our place to sacrifice himself for sinners like us. So yes, he's asking us to sacrifice, but he's sacrificed so much more on our behalf. And what he said goodbye to, like I read in Philippians, equality with a God was not a thing that he grasped hold Of all the glory and honor that he should get, he became a man, a servant, to lay down his life for us. He was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Well, there's a wonderful phrase in this passage. I know this is a, a difficult passage to look at and think about, challenging passage. But verse 26 has the best part of it, I think. He starts, first thing he says, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me, isn't that wonderful? Anyone can come to him. At any time, any place. Anyone No matter how sinful, anyone can come to Him. Look at the beauty and glory of Christ and all that He's done for sinners such as we are. Recognize that you need Him. We need grace. We we can't have that level of devotion like we should. We need His mercy and grace and forgiveness. Like we said, we're not ones to want to sacrifice much or to let go of the things that we love from this world. But Christ in all of His beauty and glory is worth it. He's the pearl of great price. Nothing is as great as Jesus and knowing Him and walking with Him. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we pray for Your help, Your mercy, Your grace these moments. Lord, You've given us these challenging statements about discipleship. And Lord, we all see how far short we fall. Well we do pray that you would grant us grace and mercy, Lord, grant us a deeper, as John saw said, a greater vision, a deeper vision of of the beauty of glory of Christ and all that he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, may our hearts grab hold of that that good news, the gospel, and Lord may it transform us. We pray that you would change us, help us, Lord to See clearly the futility of laying up treasures on this earth, of gaining the whole world but losing our soul. And Lord, help us to see Christ, the pearl of great price. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.